Good morning. Take your Bibles with, take your Bibles out and turn to uh, turn with me to Jude, fourteen. Jude verse fourteen. We're going to be looking at this morning, fourteen through nineteen, and as you will see, we have reached a turning point in our study of this book. Over the past few weeks, we've been able to take a microscopic view of false teachers of apostate, those who've abandoned the gospel of Jesus Christ that are still within the church, been able to take a microscopic view of what these, what these, these people look like, what their characteristics are. We've been able to look back uh, into, in, into the timeline of, of history and to scripture to see some comparisons in their characteristics. Uh, Pastor Paul last week took us through verse uh, 13, 11 through 13, and we noted that they walked in the way of Cain, verse 11, abandoned themselves for the sake of gain to Balaam's error, perished in Korah's rebellion. We saw the inconsistency in 12 through 13 of these false teachers. They have false fronts. What you see is not what you get. Their corrupt manner and behavior can be seen there in verse 12 and 13. And then this, mor- this morning, we're going we're gonna to complete Jude's teaching on false teachers, those within the church that are apostate, those within the church that have abandoned the faith of Christ. They proclaimed a false doctrine. They're proclaiming a false Jesus. And they, Jude turns here. Jude turns in, these, in this section and sets us up for the closing comments which we'll take next week and the following, and then the benediction that is so glorious there at the end of the book of Jude. So if you have your Bibles open, turn with me to Jude 14 through 19. Please stand with me once again. Let's honor the reading of God's word as I read this once more. Jude 14 through 19. Hear now the reading of the Lord from the ESV Bible here. It was also about these that Enoch, the seventh from Adam, prophesied, saying, Behold, The Lord came with ten thousands of his holy ones to execute judgment on all and to convict all the ungodly of all their deeds of ungodliness that they have committed in such an ungodly way and of all the harsh things that ungodly sinners have spoken against him. These are grumblers, malcontents, Following their own sinful desires, they are loud-mouthed boasters, showing favoritism to gain advantage. But you must remember, beloved, the predictions of the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ. They said to you, in the last time there will be scoffers following their own ungodly passions. It is these who cause divisions, worldly people devoid of the Spirit. Father in heaven, we come now to your word. We would ask, Father, that you would open our eyes to behold wondrous things out of your law. This book is living, and I pray that it would be seen by us today as that living word. Feed us this morning from your word, we pray, Lord. In Jesus' precious name we pray, amen. You may be seated. When I was a little boy growing up in the church, one of the things I I suppose all young children look forward to are events for the young people. And I'm talking young, eight, nine years old. I remember one such event, a friend of mine was having a birthday party and I was very excited anticipating this birthday party that was coming the following week. Looking forward to it with such great anticipation, planning for it, that a horrific thought came into my nine-year-old head 
about midway through the week. Oh no, what about if Jesus comes back and I miss the birthday party? Well, what's a nine-year-old supposed to do? Well, you sum up every bit of theological prowess that you have at that ripe young age of nine. And I thought, well, Matthew 24, 36, but concerning that day and hour, no one knows, not even the angels of heaven nor the son, but the father only. Fine, Jesus is coming back today. Because if he's coming back today, he can't come back today because I know he's coming back today. And if he can't come back today because I know he's coming back today, I can get to the birthday party this weekend. So I apologize that Christ has not come back. Because uh, apparently I knew at right by the age of nine that he was supposed to come back. I got to the birthday party, unfortunately. I wish he would have come back before, the, before now, and certainly before then. I wish he'd come back right now. Then I want to go through six pages. He is going to come back, at least in my nine-year-old mind. and He is coming back. This is Jude's, Jude's passion to us this morning, his his pastoral heart for us is to give us this thought that Christ is returning. We're fascinated in the world today with the end times. Many will remember in the early 2000s to mid-2000s the, the, just the popularity of the end time left behind uh, book series. Sold millions, millions of copies. Uh, tonight, as it were, there is the, the fourth blood moon. And that's when you have a, a super moon Combined with a lunar eclipse, you'll get tonight, around between 9 and 10, a little after that, you'll see a, a, a red moon. And many, uh, in the last couple of days, in the last couple of weeks, even the last couple of years, have been spouting all sorts of end times predictions and all sorts of a, a pop, a, apocalyptic theories as to what would happen. This is the first time since 1982, and they've written books and all of these things about what is to come. But fear not, according to NASA, the article I hold in my hands here, not to worry. There's no prediction of anything that's going to strike the earth tonight. It's amazing the, the fascination we have with the end times. I, I wouldn't have any um, data to back up a con- this comment, but I would presume, uh, as many of you know, BSF is uh, doing a study on Revelation. I would presume that their numbers have taken a pretty strong uptick because of their study of the book of Revelation. And is this fascination on the end times wrong? I, I would say probably not. Of course, like anything, it can probably go to a point of fear, worry, and anxiety, and all these things. But for the most part, it's just a fascination by many they find it mysterious. They find it interesting. But as, this, as was the case when I was nine and I didn't want Jesus to return lest I miss the birthday party, and as in the case that of so many that are fascinated by the end times, we either conveniently or naively due to our age or maturity in the Lord leave out an aspect of the end times that quickly turns that from fascination to a repulsive topic. Something no one wants to hear about, something no one wants me to preach about from the pulpit. And that is what Jude is saying here, that the judgment of all the world is coming. Jude says clearly, beloved, remember the judgment to come and hope in Christ. No one wants to talk about judgment. We want to talk about the end times, but let's not talk about judgment. Certainly let's not talk about hell. Hell is probably voted least 
favorite topic of any sermon or sermon series, not by just people listening, but by those that are preaching it. We get squirmy when it comes to the subject of judgment and hell. Yet we're fascinated with the end times. Turning your Bibles to Matthew, I want to quickly, as a way of introduction here, take you through a bit before the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 4, and then just take you through part of the Sermon on the Mount. And my point is this. Though we get squirmy on the topic of judgment, on the topic of hell, this, this was a, a central theme of the message of Christ. And I'm just going to highlight that and illustrate it quickly through the Sermon on the Mount. But it's a central theme of the teaching of Christ. Look with me at Matthew 4, starting in verse 17. This is the beginning of his, of his ministry. He has just begun to preach. He's just concluded the temptation of Jesus. He's already actually done his first, it's not listed in Matthew 4, but he's already done his first miracle, the wedding at Cana, as listed in, listed in John. And then he says, verse 17, the scriptures say, from that time Jesus began to preach saying, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And then he gets into the Sermon on the Mount. Look with me there. Matthew 5, 21, highlighting just quickly here. You have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. Whoever says you fool will be liable to the hell of fire. Verse 29, Matthew five twenty-nine. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out, throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than your whole body be thrown into hell. Turn to Matthew 7, verse 13. Enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction. And those who enter by it are many, for the gate is narrow, the way is hard, that leads to life, and those who find it are few. Look at verse 19 there. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Talking about hell here. Verse 21, 23. Not everyone uh, of Matthew 7. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, meaning on that last day, when Christ returns, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name, cast out demons in your name, do many mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. This was the centrality of much of Christ's message, this topic of judgment and, and hell that was to come. And, and, and our desire is oftentimes to get things out of balance. Visualize a seesaw. A little boy who wants to ride the seesaw with his father and the father sits on one end and a little boy immediately goes up on the other end. And only when you're able to get it balanced out do you actually able to enjoy this apparatus in the park. And it's the same way with scripture. We love topics of love and mercy and grace and faithfulness and gentleness, kindness, 
all these attributes of God that are so there and should be declared. And yet, no, we don't want to have any talk about judgment and hell to the detriment of the fact that we get out of balance and how Scripture proclaims these things. And I would submit to you that when you do get it in balance is when these things, all that we like to hear about, really come into their full beauty because there's a reason for them. There's a reason for them. Now go back to Jude. This this topic of judgment and hell should cause us as believers to squirm a bit, to feel uncomfortable in, 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 a, in the seat, as it were. But as, as believers as well, there is no topic, whether it's hell, whether it's uh, judgment, uh, there's no subject that as believers we cannot put on the, the gospel spectacles, the gospel glasses, uh, the lens, as it were, to allow us to view these things that as we do so, even though it makes us squirm, we at the same time are rejoicing. We at the same time are, are worshiping. And that's what Jude wants to do here. That's what he's, he's trying to proclaim. Christ is coming to judge. Should be some fear here. Should be some trepidation here. But there also should be rejoicing because there's hope in Christ. Look with me at verse 14. He's, he's concluding this entire series, this entire section on false teachers with judgment. He began it with judgment in verse 5 of Jude. Now I want to remind you, although you once fully knew it, that Jesus who saved the people out of the land of Egypt afterward destroyed those who did not believe. He starts this teaching on false teachers with judgment. He's ending it in verse 14 with judgment. And he begins with this prophecy of Enoch. Enoch, the seventh from Adam, prophesied saying, Behold... The Lord came with ten thousands of his holy ones to execute judgment on all and to convict all the ungodly of their deeds of ungodliness that they have committed in such an ungodly way. And of all the harsh things the ungodly sinners have spoken against him. Enoch, as mentioned in Genesis 5, verse 18, was seventh from Adam in the lineage of Adam. We're not sure if he was actually the seventh person after Adam, but in the lineage listed in Scripture, he's the seventh after Adam. And he's talking about, it was about these, meaning Enoch was prophesying about false teachers. He's talking about the judgment that was to come for these those that are apostate for the false teachers. And so not only was the, um, the message of, is the message of judgment central to the teaching of Christ, as we saw in Matthew 5, 6, and 7, it's also, teaching to the, it's also central to the, all the teaching of Scripture. And here's what I, I want to show you that. We don't, we don't know uh, what Enoch said. We know he said this. We don't know anything else about him. In fact, go, go in your Bibles to Genesis 5. Genesis 5, verse 18. When Jared had lived 162 years, he fathered Enoch. Jared lived after he fathered Enoch 800 years and had other sons and daughters. Thus, all the days of Jared were 962 years and he died. When Enoch had lived 65 years, he fathered Methuselah. Enoch walked with God after he followed Methuselah 300 years and had other sons and daughters. Thus all the days of Enoch were 365 years. Enoch walked with God and he was not for God took him. That's all we know. 
We know that he, he was a man of God. We know that he was obviously walking with God, whether or not that was a, a, a figurative walking with God or a literally he was walking with God. We don't know, but all we know is he was one of two in Scripture that were not buried, did not die. They were taken up to be with the Lord. That's all we know. Now, does that mean that this prophecy here in Jude 14 is false? No, it's Scripture, Holy Scripture. It's inerrant. There's no, there's, no, there's no contradiction. There's no falsehood. This is what was said. This is Holy Scripture. Enoch said this. Now, here's what I want you to see. This is the central, if it's, it's not just the central theme, judgment in hell is just not the central theme of Christ. It's the central theme of the entire scriptures. Because here, before Noah, we have the first prophecy of judgment to come. The first prophecy by a man. Now, there was a prophecy before that that happened in the garden, but that was by God. This is the first prophecy by man that happened in Scripture. It's recorded in Jude. It happened back in Genesis. Judgments to come. What's the last prophecy in Scripture? Flip over a few pages. Revelation. Revelation 22. Very end of your Bible. Revelation 22, verse 20. He who testifies to these things says, Surely I am coming soon. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. The grace of the Lord Jesus be with all. Amen. You look earlier in that passage, verse 11 of Revelation 22. Let the evildoer still do evil, and the filthy still be filthy, and the righteous still do right, and the holy still be holy. Behold, I am coming soon, bringing my recompense with me to repay everyone for what he has done. The Bible begins and it ends with judgment that's to come. It ends with judgment that's to come, and it begins with that. But that's not a message of doom and gloom. It is for those who do not know the Lord. But it's really a message of love. God loves you enough to say, if you don't come to Christ in saving faith, this is what awaits. This should, this should sober you. This should humble you. It's a clarion call. It's a, it's a trumpet blast. It heralds, it warns, it pleads, it calls the unsaved to saving faith in Christ alone. And it calls those that are saved to persevere for it because Christ is coming. And no man knows the day. No man knows the hour. Scripture teaches Christ doesn't even know. Only the Father, God the Father knows. And so that as for believers, this should pers- uh, per- move us forward Drive us forward to strive, to contend for the faith, as Jude told us in verses 3 and 4. This prophecy of Enoch is really, it's a, it's a prophecy of judgments to come, but for us as believers, it's a prophecy of hope. Because it, we serve a righteous judge. And if he wasn't a righteous judge, and if he wasn't going to punish the ungodly, what's the point? I can do whatever I want, I can sin however I want, and I can have my cake and eat it too and go to heaven. But no, no, there is judgment to come upon the ungodly. 
And because of that, that should now give us a message of hope to say, I am not ungodly, not by anything that I have done, but by the merit of Christ alone. So I wait for that day, being able to live with him in eternity, that Christ is coming, but my hope is in him. Quickly, before we move past this, verse 14 and 15, I want to just make a, a few quick highlights. One would be, I stated earlier, putting on that gospel lens, the gospel spectacles allow us to, to view even these difficult passages on judgment and hell to come with, with hope. 2 Peter 2.5 says, If he did not spare the ancient world, but preserved Noah, a herald of righteousness, with seven others when he brought a flood upon the world of the ungodly. You notice uh, Enoch says, Behold, the Lord came with ten thousands of his holy ones, verse 15, to execute judgment. And we've stated before that 2 Peter was written in close proximation with Jude. And this thought that Christ has saved. There's been a judgment once. This flood of Noah. But Christ, in, as a picture of the, the ark is a picture of Christ saved. He saved those who through the, through the work, through the way only that God provided for this to be saved from this flood, this ark, those who trusted in that way were saved. He's already executed judgment. He's going to execute judgment for eternity coming. But when you put on that gospel lens, you look at that and you go execute judgment well, he's going to do it again, but there's a way. Just like there was the ark was the way out of the flood, there's a way. That way is Christ. If we would but trust in him, we have saving, a way to be saved. We have the only way to be saved. Last point I want to make about 14 and 15 is notice the many, words, many uses of the word ungodly. To execute judgment on all and to convict all the ungodly. of all their deeds of ungodliness they have committed in such an ungodly way and of all the harsh things that ungodly sinners the ungodly will experience the full righteous judgment of the Lord and what I want to what I want to point out about this is we we should view we're talking about false teachers and apostates this is what this is what Jews talking about these people that do not know the Lord they're ungodly they're leading people astray into a false gospel. Look how, look how Scripture deals with them. It is serious. It is serious. There's no, there's no playing around here. There's no messing with a little bit of this and a little bit of that. And as Christians, we need to view false teaching. We need to view those that are abandoning the faith, that are apostate, very seriously. This is not a laughing matter. It's not a, tri a matter to just trifle with. This is a very serious matter because the ungodly will have judgment executed upon them. The full wrath of God. It's not something to play with. Verse 16. These are grumblers. Jude continues his description of false teachers. These are grumblers, malcontents, Following their own sinful desires, they are loudmouth boasters showing favoritism to gain advantage. That to gain advantage is probably referring back to verse 11 
where we have for sake of gain, meaning money, meaning they're going to manipulate people in order to gain for themselves something and probably money. I want to point out just quickly here this, this contrast. Grumblers, malcontents, following their own sinful desires. Then it flips. They are loudmouth boasters. Well, how can you be a grumbler and a loudmouth boaster? One seems to be proud and proclaiming. The other one seems to be moody and quiet. The point is, is there's, the key here is there's no, it's, there's no consistency with these people. They're very inconsistent. One minute they're boasting, the next they're complaining. One minute they're discontent, the next they're happy. One minute they don't know you, the next minute you're their best friend. All for the point of manipulating so that they can get, they can gain. They can subvert. They can divide. Jude, in his pastoral way, giving us more signs to look for, more characteristics. And then we reach verse 17 and 18. And this is where Jude makes the turn. There's a shift in this verse. But, it's got to be one of the greatest words in Scripture. You know, as a child... If, 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 if a child says to his parent, but daddy, but this, but that, oftentimes it's in the context of, but I don't want to do that. But this is going to be hard. But you flip it on his head when it's the parent saying that. Oftentimes it's, especially scripturally, son or daughter, you've done wrong. This is what's happening. There's going to be consequences. But. But. It's going to be different than what you deserve. And that's the way that it is here in Scripture so often. But God, in His riches, richest mercy, while we were yet sinners, all, so, all, so often through Scripture do you see this, where there's this whole line of, this is what's going to happen, but. And that's what's happening here. Jude pastorally Shifting some things, but you must remember, just finished a bunch of verses, 12 verses, basically preaching fire and brimstone, and then he makes this shift, but you must remember. So now he's, he's turning and he's beginning to address the people again, but you must remember, beloved, the predictions of the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ. They said to you, they said to you in the last time there will be scoffers, that's referencing back to verse 16, loud mouth boasters following their own ungodly passions. That's also, verse 16, sinful desires. But notice what he's doing here. He's he's taking something that they're intimately acquainted with because he's already told them about Enoch. Well, Enoch was years and years and years before them. But now he's getting into something that they're personally acquainted with. They said to you. Now, we don't know who said this. And the last time there will be scoffers. We know it's the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ. We don't know exactly how it was said or who said it. But my, one of the points I want to make here is, this is, a, this is something that they were, they were well acquainted with. And Jude, just though for a short book, he just drops things in so often with no explanation. He drops in in verse 8 and 9, Mike, the archangel Michael contending for the body with, with the devil for the body of Moses. Nowhere else in Scripture does that come around. Then he drops in this prophecy of Enoch. Nowhere else in Scripture can that be found. And then he just drops in, they said to you. 
It's a very intimate book. But what he's doing is he's saying, it's, it's been foretold from the very beginning, Enoch. And it's even being said now, the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ, who have said to you, this is going to happen. And for us today, on September 27, 2015, it's the same. It's been said in, e- in Enoch's time. It's been said in Jews' time. And we still have Holy Scripture that's living and breathing and active. And it's being said in our time now. False teachers will be here. Scoffers will be here. Remember. But you must remember. Do not think it strange. He's saying that there's going to be false teachers. Do not be alarmed. We should not be alarmed. Aghast? Yes. Shocked? Yes. That they would have the audacity to blaspheme the holy God. But surprised? No. Because he's been proclaimed. We've been told this. That's what Jude's saying. But you must remember Matthew Henry says, We must not think it strange, but comfort ourselves with this, that in the midst of all this confusion, Christ will maintain his church and make good his promise that the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Matthew 16, 18. The great hymn of the faith, When I fear my faith will fail, Christ will hold me fast. When the tempter would prevail, he will hold me fast. I could never keep my hold through life's fearful path for my love is often cold. He will hold me fast. He will hold me fast. He will hold me fast. For my Savior loves me so. He will hold me fast. Jude proclaiming to those that are reading this letter and proclaiming to us today, do not be discouraged. This is the pastoral heart of him. Beloved, do not be discouraged. Those that know the Lord, Christ will return. He proclaims that the word of God proclaims to us today. Do not be discouraged. Surprised? No, that there are false teachers. Surprised that people are taking uh, this blood moon and making all sorts of crazy predictions. Surprised? No, we should not be. We should not be discouraged that we see false teachers within the church. Because Christ will return. He is coming Notice in verse 18, they scoff. They said to you in the last time there will be scoffers where the ungodly speaker reverently as Christians, we should be the ones who are speaking most reverently about the Lord. And it's oftentimes, that's, what, that's when you can know someone that's a believer many times is how do they speak about the Lord? How do they, how do they use the word of God? How do they use God's name? Is it reverently or is it irreverently? Finally, verse 19. It is these, meaning those, these false teachers, those scoffers, verse 18, those who are following their ungodly passions, it is these who cause divisions, worldly people devoid of the Spirit. Divisions in the church is what is being talked about here. Remember, this is Jude's reason for writing. He was telling us in verse 4, contend for the faith because certain people have crept in unnoticed. I wanted to write to you about the gospel, he said, but no, I had to write to you about the need to contend for the faith because there are certain people creeping into the church preaching a false gospel. These are the people that will cause divisions. They are worldly people devoid of the Spirit. That's a mark of of those that are believers is they have the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. 
That's a mark of those that are unbelievers is there's not the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. 1 Corinthians 2.14 The natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God for they are folly to him. And he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. The natural person, the person that is in the flesh, the person that does not know Jesus Christ cannot understand these things because they are the Spirit of God. Philippians 3.3 For we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glorify and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. C.S. Lewis wrote much on the end times, wrote much on the judgment to come. I want to read in closing a, a statement of his. We've all encountered judgments or verdicts on ourselves in this life. Every now and then we discover what our fellow creatures really think of us. I'm thinking of what we sometimes overhear by accident or of the opinions about which our neighbors or employees or subordinates unknowingly reveal in their actions and of the terrible or lovely judgments artlessly betrayed by children or even animals. Such discoveries can be the bittersweet or sweetest experiences we ever have. I suppose the experience of the final judgment, which may break in upon us at any moment, will be like these little experiences, but magnified to the nth degree. For it will be infallible judgment. If it is favorable, we shall have no fear. If unfavorable, no hope that the judgment was wrong. We shall not only believe, we shall know, know beyond doubt in every fiber of our appalled or delighted being that as the judge has said, so we are, neither more nor less nor other. We shall perhaps even realize that in some dim fashion we could have known it all along. Lewis talking about the fact that when we stand before the holy God in judgment, Christ executing judgment upon us, we will see ourselves as we truly are. And whether we are delighted or we are uh, in terror, it is the truth. They will be unable to be changed. It will be as if a, a little child smiles at you because they delight in you or they run from you in terror screaming, but magnified to the nth degree. Because we'll see ourselves as we truly are. Jude proclaiming to us this morning that when the Lord returns, many will see him as judge. But for those who know him, for those who have set their hope in Christ alone for saving faith, will see him as a beautiful savior. The one who has died for our sins upon our behalf. The one who has redeemed us by his blood. John Calvin said this and how we should handle the coming judgment as believers. The vengeance suspended over the wicked ought to keep the elect in fear and watchfulness. There should be a a level upon us as believers of fear and watchfulness upon our souls that we would not wonder, that we would not stray, that we would not be a false teacher or an apostate. But that we would, as Christ says, he will hold us fast to the end. We would hold fast to him 
all the way to the end. Having our hope secure in him alone and what he has done for us. But at the same time, looking at this passage, especially here in Jude, seeing the judgment that's to come, squirming on it, it's not comfortable. But taking that lens of the gospel and laying it over the top of it and being able to rejoice in the hope that we have in Christ. And that when we stand before him, though imperfect as we are, we will be able to hear, well done, thou good and faithful servant. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we, we rejoice to know that you are coming. Oh Lord Jesus, come and come quickly, we pray. But Father, as you tarry, may we not grow apathetic to this gospel. May we not view those who proclaim a false gospel flippantly or humorously. May may our response, Father, to the, the judgment to come be one that spurs us forward in a love for you and spurs us forward in a love for our fellow man that we would proclaim the gospel to those around us, calling pleading that judgment is to come. And the judgment will come upon the ungodly. You will come and execute judgment, Father. We will all be judged and yet the, the final sentence, sentencing, as it were, for eternity will be based upon Do you know Christ and does Christ know you? Father, may that be the the good word that is continually upon our lips as we see our family and friends and coworkers. May our testimony be, as we spoke earlier today, may our testimony be of that of one of one who has been been saved by grace one who has been given the free gift, one who has been changed, one who has been set free from the enslavement of sin. Father, we thank you, Lord, for this word. May it live in our hearts this week. May it change how we view the use of our time, how we view our conversations. May it humble us. May it make us more Christ-centered. May it make it make us more others-centered, less of ourselves, Father. We thank you, Father, that you have laid upon your Son the judgment that was reserved for us. We rejoice in that this morning, Father. In Jesus' precious and holy name we pray, amen.